Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusek, and with us today is Hanif Abirakib. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. His poetry has been published in Muzzle, Vinyl, Pen American, and various other journals. His essays and music criticism have been published in The Fader, Pitchfork, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. His first full-length poetry collection, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, was named a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Book Prize and was nominated for a Hurston Wright Legacy Award. His first collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, was released in winter 2017 by $2 Radio and was named Book of the Year by BuzzFeed, Esquire, NPR, Oprah Magazine, Paste, CBC, The Los Angeles Review, Pitchfork, The Chicago Tribune, among others. He released Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, which became a New York Times bestseller, was a finalist for the Kirkus Prize, and was long listed for the National Book Award. His second collection of poems, A Fortune for Your Disaster, was released in 2019 by Tin House and won the 2020 Lenore Marshall Prize. In 2021, he released the book A Little Devil in America with Random House, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, the National Books Critics Circle Award, and the Penn Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay. The book won the 2022 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction and the Gordon Byrne Prize. Hanif, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. It's really uh, great to be here. Would you would you please start us off with a poem? Uh, yeah, I'll read a, a short thing. I don't really, I've been, I haven't been paying, uh, writing a lot of poems, but uh, I've been working on the new nonfiction book, which has these interludes in it that feel like poems that are kind of odes to um, Ohio aviators and whatever form that is. So I'll read this little thing about Lonnie Carmen, uh, who's a pilot in Columbus in the, in the early 1900s. And the hood called him the junk man, would throw him all sorts of their undesirables, cartons and metals and cardboards right here in Columbus. And wouldn't you know, Lonnie built a plane out of what his people didn't want in their homes and on their porches. And they should have never let him get his hands on that motorcycle engine because that was all he needed. And before you knew it, Lonnie was flying his plane over his hood on weekends, the people on his block running outside and pointing at him in the sky, their old trash now cradled by endless blue. And Lonnie had no training, which is maybe why Port Columbus Authority never gave him a gig, even though he tried. And today, Lonnie got himself a monument in that same airport. And in the photo, he is wearing his helmet and his glasses, and he is next to the plane he made from whatever the people he loved showed up to his doorstep with. And I tell my homies, I am not superstitious, but here I am, touching the photo of Lonnie again, while I walk to the security line before getting on a plane, before forcing myself to forget about the mechanics of flight and all the ways it could fail. And I think about Lonnie in the sky, kept safe by his people and the small but useful things that outlasted their dreams. Wow. Thank you. Um, you're from Columbus and you just got, you got your start here. And uh, I was curious, how, how has the city of Columbus changed both the writing scene and the city since you began writing? Well, I think, I mean, the writing scene has become, uh, I think, both more expansive but also it's it's changed since the pandemic because you know there was a point where um you know when i was coming up when i was out most frequently you could hit an open mic at you know almost any weeknight in the city and they were all different they were all unique uh open mics they were all kind of um catering to different things and you could hear different poems and you know there was a poetry forum and there was writer's block and writing wrongs and I ran a night, these kind of things. And, um, you know, one big difference is that a lot of those places have not returned or, um, you know, have not returned to the, perhaps the uh, status that they were uh, most commonly at. Um, and so there's maybe a bit of an absence in terms of physical places to hear po poetry every night. But I also just think that the writing community has become more expansive. There's young writers who are, um, you know, brilliant high school writers who are kind of making their own way and folks who are doing uh, incredible bits of self-publishing and uh, kind of getting their work uh, on the map in that way. And so, you know, th there's, um, there's a way that the, uh, 
the ability to just kind of show up somewhere and see a poem is uh, a bit more limited than it was. But there's also kind of an expansive nature uh, in how in how work is entering the world. And so I, I appreciate that. And of course, I mean, the city is, uh, it feels often at the whims of developers and the powerful and, and folks who are, you know, I appreciate the artists and the activists and community members who are trying to keep corners of the city to their own because, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel like we're going to, uh, left to its own devices. I don't think the city would would allow uh, allow those of us who have been here for a long time and who have loved it to maintain the things we love about it. That's interesting. And, and what are some of the struggles that you've seen in terms of trying to hold on to that culture? Well, I mean, I think part of it is because Columbus doesn't seem to know what kind of city it wants to be. It seems to want to be multiple cities at once. Um, and none of those cities seem to reflect the actual people who have been here, who have lived here and who've loved here and who've created things here. And so, um, you know, that's a struggle in and of itself is that um, I think the creative city spirit of the city, um, you know, is at odds with, or at least like brushes aggressively up against the whims of, of the city itself or what the city believes itself to be, um, which it seems to uh, still be in the throes of figuring out at the expense of a lot of folks. Sure. And I imagine these changes, both COVID and developmentally, have affected the beat and slam, the performance side of poetry more than perhaps traditional sharing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I do, you know, there aren't a lot of uh aren't a lot of slam venues anymore. And I that's the venues I came up in slam venues. But I think you know, even before the pandemic. Uh, like I know writer's block had kind of turned away from slam a bit and uh, or at least had, had taken to slam in more creative ways um, which I always appreciated but you know yeah I, I came up through slam slam was kind of the um, the era or the 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 medium that I operated in uh, and so you know I I, I uh, owe a lot to slam and, and the slam community in Columbus when it was at its height you know um, or one of its heights, it's been, it's had many heights, but one of its heights was certainly um, when I was coming up, which is, you know, early 2010s. Yeah. What do you think the difference is between coming up in po the, the poetry community through slam versus more academic? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I could say for me, it was uh, the only reason I got into slam initially was because I just needed something to motivate me to write. I needed like a self-imposed deadline and at writer's block and at writing wrongs, if you want to slam, you had to bring a new poem, you know? Um, and so I, I mostly just needed something to get me to write a new poem. Um, <laughs> and so that's, and, and what I found, what I really enjoyed in slam was that you get a, a sort of, um, there's a real-time feedback that you get. Uh, and there's a real-time relationship being built with an audience and so just um because of the nature of it because of the nature of say like call and response that is almost um i would say required not just uh you know it's not just something that is um encouraged within slam but it's required and so when you're reading your poem and you hear people react to it a certain way that that's a form of like say real time real time editing um and that's uh you know i i always really feel um that what i most owe to slam is an understanding of how to read my work out loud and um how to edit in, in an audible sense and i i really value that oh that's cool and, and your your poetry has a real sort of free form. I mean, it it, it has less punctuation. Oftentimes, you're not capitalizing things, and it it flows. And and do you owe that to Slam too? Would you say? I think so. Yeah. I mean, when I was first writing poems, I was writing them purely to be performed. Um, I wasn't writing them to be read on the page because I would memorize everything, and so I was mostly writing just as a tool of getting the language somewhere where I could memorize it 
and so there are early poems of mine where you know people will see a video online and be like well where's this poem and I, I don't have it I don't know where it is um <laughs> and so you know when I did start sitting down and saying okay I want to get my poems on the page in a way that where they can live you know somewhere beyond me and beyond um the stage um it, it I wanted to to write poems as I was reading them you know I wanted the poems to kind of reflect to get as close to the, the, the nature of the performance of them as I, as I could. Um, and that, that really allowed me some inventiveness um, with how, with how I put my work on the page. And uh, I think I've may I've been lucky enough been able, to be able to maintain that. Okay. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think that comes across for sure. Um, <clears throat> so you just, you just finished working on a book project. It's nonfiction. Um, so what is the project and what, what, how did the writing unfold? The project's called There's Always This Year and it's a book, um, you know, I've been kind of resisting the nature of like aboutness of saying this is about, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it, it does use basketball as a container. So basketball is the container for the book. Um, but the book is mostly about who gets to make it and who doesn't and what making it looks like um, once you live beyond a, a point where you believed yourself capable of living, um, wherein you're maybe making it in a different way every single day. Um, and I, I really loved, you know, it was one of those things where because basketball is a container and because I have never written a book like this with this kind of container before, I really loved, you know, much like Little Devil in America, I had so much fun writing that for the similar reason, which is I got to kind of dig in the archives of a, a, a past life that you know for me I'm an athlete I grew up playing basketball and playing soccer um, it was really wonderful to get to dwell in you know all of these videos of, of of basketball from an era that I grew up playing in even though much of that stuff didn't actually make it in the book you know in the physical book it was just a real delight to get to spend time um, in a in a past era that meant a lot to me yeah what was one of the most surprising things you found while researching? You know, I think that because because um, LeBron James is also a center point of the container, you know, LeBron and I are about the same age. We came up playing around the same time and, and being immersed in the world of basketball at the same time. Um, it was it was really refreshing and exciting for me to go back and remember um that LeBron James, as he became, as he became known, even by his junior year of high school, you know, there were other folks, um, because he kind of eclipsed the basketball landscape in Ohio by the time he was a junior and senior, uh, and he was beginning to by the time he was a freshman, sophomore, um, you know, it was refreshing to go back and remember there were so many other folks um, in my neighborhood, even, who were singular players operating at that time as well and um you know it was kind of good to to refurnish uh that particular corner of of my memory palace um with with just guys i remember playing with or seeing or you know it was a good reminder that you know lebron is as great as he is of course um was not the only person operating uh in that moment Sure. Now you, you talk and write about sentimentality and moments in time, stuff like this, where it's, it's both personal to you and historically relevant to the community. And you mentioned in uh, the keynote speech you gave this summer at the NFSPS conference that you wanted to write about Columbus neighborhoods you knew before they started becoming gentrified and before people were getting displaced and the neighborhoods were changing. And in, you wrote an essay about the Ohio State Fair, uh, where there was that ride that, that, that uh killed that, that kid and um, yeah 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 it's awful god <laughs> but it, but it you you said that that the you weren't sure why people rode those state ride those the rides at state fairs but it, you thought it had something to do with childhood and so what do you what do you think is humanity's obsession about the good old days and what do you think are some of the dangers about trying to recreate that past or living in it well i mean i I, I do think that nostalgia without a critical eye put on it is uh, dangerous because it's riding a wave of um, 
uncritical affection about the past. And, and as we know, you know, the past held, the past holds a lot of pleasures, but a lot of terrors, depending on who you are, how you experience the world, how you identify all these things. Um, and in the actual like physical sense too, there are things that we were drawn to in our past that are maybe untenable for the world now. Now, this isn't to say, of course, I think there are elements of things like the fair. I didn't go this year. I kind of wanted to go to the Ohio State Fair this year, but I, I was too in and out of town. But, you know, I like, I still like elements of the fair. So, like, I'm not going to get on one of those rides, personally. It's just for me. Personally, I'm not. But but I still like elements of, of the fair because it reminds me of a time when I was a kid and I had, like, a little bit of money in my pocket and I could, you know, go and and have some freedom like away from the place I lived you know mm -hmm. um but I, I also do think that all nostalgia deserves um perhaps a critical eye placed upon it that's the most generous way that I think we can receive um our past even if we are excited about the the many ways our past represents itself I think um being critical and putting a critical eye towards it is uh is is the best thing we can do for ourselves sure and when you're working on books like these where you're applying that critical eye what is how do you know when you, you got the criticism when you're like yes i nailed it you know what i mean like <laughs> how do you know yeah <laughs> well i think for me the question is always um am I implicating something or someone, even myself beyond the initial pleasure of the, um, of the nostalgia revelation, you know, um, beyond the initial exuberance of just, wasn't this thing that happened in the time before this one really cool. I think there's, there's gotta be a way that I am kind of um, thoughtfully indicting myself or the role of, um, the role that this nostalgia played that wasn't always joyful for everyone. Um, and I, I think I do that sometimes, I mean, most often by placing myself um, at the center of my work, or at least um, maybe not the center, but but never too far from the center of my work. And uh, that, that serves me a bit because, um, yeah, I, I feel... Like it is easiest then for me to say, um, you know, I was this way and I am a different way now. And it's it, it, me being a different way now is is for the better. But I'm also not ashamed of who I was. I needed who I was to become who I am. That kind of thing. That kind of honesty, I think, is uh, is is what gets the job done. That makes sense. I mean, there's there's a pretty stark difference between somebody saying this needs to change versus this needs to change. I was a part of it. I feel bad, but I have this perspective. Yeah. And I, you know, you can't like beat yourself up. I was, you know, you, you're, you have to, the hard part is uh, the hard part is not beating oneself up. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but you, you can't, it's, it's not useful. Right. It's, um, it's significantly more beneficial. I think to say, well, I, I just, I was someone different than I am now. And that's, that's just the math. I mean, that we all have to, we encounter that math um, in whatever way we do, but uh, it is, it is the math nonetheless. <laughs> this is, pardon me for a question that might be a little too philosophical and far gone, but it, is it possible to be irredeemable? Um. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm someone who believes in um, a world beyond the structures of punishment that we currently have in place. That's one thing. And two, I'm someone who believes in a world where, you know, people individually don't inflict prolonged punishment on each other. Now, I don't believe that I personally need to redeem everyone. So are there people who might fall into the category of irredeemable for me? absolutely sure um but now do i believe that people by and large should be or could be 
irredeemable. I, I don't know if I believe that. I do believe that, um, or at least my hope is that um, there is an arc of redemption for everyone. But I also very much realize that um, I don't necessarily need to do that work. I don't need to be the one who redeems people. Um, I can say, well, I hope this person finds redemption somewhere, uh, but they don't need to find it through me. Sure, sure. Okay, that makes sense. Um, So you have this amazing ability to pull in pop culture and history and the personal, which we've already talked about, and and to to prove a wider point. And for for instance, in A Little Devil in America, it starts with the nationwide dance craze, which I found super interesting um and it continues to show how black involvement in creative communities was in was incredibly influential and impactful on america but it was also ignored by the rest of society and you have this anecdote when the uh, when you're talking about how the hell's angels murdered meredith hunter at a rolling stones concert and you wrote his family could not afford a tombstone so he was buried in an unmarked grave in east vallejo california he was a footnote to the land as he'd become a footnote to the Altamont, the victim of that concert's logical conclusion. And, okay, so these questions are kind of tangentially related, but one, how do you choose your stories and see the wider implication they have for society? And two, how do you think Americans can be educated about these parts of history that they seem almost determined to ignore? Well, for me, I don't, I don't ever think about myself as uh, someone who's interested in educating Americans in part because, um, you know, I think Americans um, as Americans, you know, like I think there's a a desire to forget the history that doesn't serve the greater goals of furthering empire or, you know, like, or to become kind of forgetful. I mean, every time there's a, there's a shooting or a, or a, not only a school shooting, a police involved, a police shooting. And we have, we have these conversations about what violence is and what acceptable violence is. And, and this is not who we are kind of things. Um, I, that for me signals this idea that um, we America really relies on a, a, a really rigid relationship with forgetting things and hoping that everyone else forgets things. Um, and so I've, I've perhaps given up on, if I was ever invested in it, which I don't think I ever was, but I've really given up on the idea of educating folks because, um, you know, Little Devil in America was a book that was, I, I wrote out of a lot of exuberance and a lot of excitement and uncovering those stories meant a lot to me. And it was, it was really fun. Now, of course, um, if people find their way to the book and learn something, that's great. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not refusing that. I'm not saying like, don't learn anything from this book. Um, (laughs) Certainly not refusing that, but um, I would not say that my intention was one of, I hope to teach people something because um yeah i i don't know if that's where my brain was at sure sure do you think well it's 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 strange you say that because my book actually came with a copy of horse blinders you know (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) do you think that short-sightedness is uniquely american or do you think that's more of a human thing I would imagine, I don't know, you know, I don't spend as much time in other places. And so I, I, my relationship with it is, is uniquely American, but part of me does, you know, the impulse I have um, suggests, or or at least I feel like um, it is an American, or I mean, it is a, it is a human affliction, um, a global human affliction. And I feel myself personally immerse myself in it in in lower stakes situations perhaps you know um like i also rely on short-sightedness in, in situations that were that are um 
of the lower stakes sort of the of the lower stakes emotional sort perhaps and i i don't um you know it's one of those things where i'm often like well i wish i i wish i were better at confronting um there are things that i wish i was i were better at confronting but um but i don't think i you know i'm not there yet uh and uh that is you know that is a an an ever evolving challenge sure i think that's natural too because you can only work on so many flaws at a time you know what i mean yes 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 (laughs) that's true and and you can't work on them all to the same with the same ferocity or intention you know um i mean this is a miracle of of uh one miracle of being fortunate enough to age um i think for me at least is is uh being intensely and acutely aware of of that reality and embracing it in a way you know and kind of being like well yeah you're right like i can't work on uh i actually physically cannot work on every single thing at once and if i am lucky i will live long enough to be able to work on any number of things uh but but they're going to come slowly i think that's a healthy generous way to look at it i think and like there there are flaws that i think where i just i've just shoved them <laughs> you know I just, yeah. i'll deal with you later i've got other more pressing things to deal with now <laughs> yeah i mean i you know i i'm i'm a deeply flawed person i've lived a, a very flawed life and i think that my impulse um particularly i think when my life you know changed a bit or when i felt like I took on a bit more responsibility for the ways that I was failing, not just others, but myself um, and wanted to change that. My impulse was like, how do I become a quote unquote better person overnight? You know, like, how do I become, yeah. You know, like, how do I become a better person like today? Yeah. But that's just not how, it's not how any of this works. And um you know, that that's, uh, again, I, I'm really thankful that I've had the opportunity to age beyond a point where I thought I would age, uh, because it has afforded me a real ability to um, understand that these things kind of turn slowly and uh, to kind of take some heart in that and, and understand that um, I don't have forever, but I, I have, uh, I have perhaps some time to make to make the world, to make myself uh, comfortable with how I am in the world. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. And and, and those those times where I told myself, okay, tomorrow's going to be different. You know, I'm going to wake up and have, everything's going to be perfect. Yeah. Those were the times where I was the least kind to myself because right. you expect immediate results. They don't happen. And then you 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 fall back into these cycles again. Yeah, yeah. And it puts, I mean, it puts all of us in a bad place. It puts all of us in a pretty unfair place um, of expectations. And, you know, I think, you know, we, we, broadly speaking, um, I think it's possible that we deserve better, Uh, not just for ourselves, but for, for every, you know, for, for the people who love us and care about us, you know, we, I think we deserve, we deserve grace. Uh, one of my dear friends yesterday, I was talking to my friend, the poet Angel Nafis, was like, I'm at a point in my life where I don't even know if I deserve grace, but I, I need it, you know? And of course, like, well, she deserves grace, of course. But but the whole thing is like, I don't know if, I, like, I don't want to fight for this. I don't want to, um, I don't want to, like, make a case for my deserving of grace. Like, I just need it to to survive. And so if I need it, then we're going to have to come to some kind of agreement on the, you know, um, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, we, we gotta, we gotta hit an agreement on, on like what I'm going to receive from the world because it's hard, you know, like I, I have been, I've been thinking so much about, um, just the challenges of being and, um, it's, it's tough. And I, 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 I feel like I am most now, most commonly in a place now where it's like, I hope that I deserve grace, but even if I don't in the eyes of some, like, I, it's just, we, a lot of us need it to function. So like, that's what, that's where we're at. We got to have it to function. And there, there's no other questions 
you know, no, no other questions at this time. That's just what I need, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny. Cause you think, you know, if somebody, somebody has like an episode, like they break down and they just, that was it. That was the final last straw and Campbell's back's broken. The, the, you know, all the, usually those time, those are the moments when people pull away from that person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, they wind up suffering more because they've now alienated themselves and maybe they did something where they don't deserve grace, but perhaps grace in those moments might be what's needed the most. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a challenge though. You know, it's a challenge to extend it, to extend grace to people who I know this, I'm not even like, uh, I, I know this as someone who has both felt that challenge um, myself and as someone who's like been challenged to offer that to people. Uh, it's, it's just not easy. And um, that is perhaps why, you know, my, my impulse is always, um, how do I become a slightly better person who can articulate not only my needs, but, but also tap in with the needs of other people? You know, how do I, how do I best, um, how do I best get to the heart of what other people need and be a good steward of other people's needs as well? Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you're, you're also a culture critic, which I found fascinating. You, you, one of your projects is a podcast called the object of sound. And in it, you mentioned that you want to find how musicians and artists use music to make sense of the world around them. You, uh, and so I wanted to ask, what did you, what have you learned while working on this podcast? You, you, in, in it, you called yourself one of the recent episodes I was listening to. You called yourself a responsible curator as somebody who enjoys making playlists to, t- to tell a story. And I remember like burning CDs and like yeah. giving them to friends and be like, this is like our time we went camping. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jeremy. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, um, I think one thing I've learned is just, so that there are so many musicians who kind of just like want to talk about who want to talk about their work in deep and thoughtful ways and who don't always get the opportunity to do so and um you know one great thing about object of sound is just simply like having the opportunity to have these conversations to say to someone like i've done really deep listening you know I, i'm coming to you as as an admirer of something you've created you know i think a lot of musicians are used to having these kind of um sometimes like um with respect to other interviews these kind of like dry conversations and for me I, you know i'm like i'm a real fan you know i, I love music and so i, I don't want to if I have the opportunity to have someone's ear um, and they've created something that I I think is really special, I don't ever want to pass that up, you know? Um, And so I've learned how to, to be uh, an attentive and eager fan too. And it's not just like, you know, um, one big thing during the pandemic that I tried to avoid because I guess the ongoing pandemic, but you know, the, 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 the questions that so many musicians got were like, so you made a pandemic album, that kind of thing, you know, yeah. I was like, I don't, I, and I get it. I get why that's, um, but I, my whole thing is like, I want to, um, I want to get into the weeds of the writing, you know, I'm such a big exuberant um, fan of writing. And so I, I want to get to the core of, how the writing happened on an album and what the writing tells me about the the person who created it and these kind of things, you know, I, I don't want to pass up these opportunities to have in-depth, generous conversations um, with folks who are, who are doing work I admire. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, and what would you say is an element of success of that? Like when you're sitting down to talk to somebody, when do you know, you've hit the pinata, so to speak. Um, you know, for me, it's always telling when someone uh, gets excited about what I like to call the song within the song or the creation within the creation. Because when I get someone not just talking about an overarching process and have them talking about a line in a song 
or a sonic movement in a song and they get to a point where they're excited because they know that I want to hear about the actual moving parts inside of the moving parts then the conversation really flows the conversation becomes um incredibly generous I think and that's where I think I really learn uh I really learn from 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 folks and um yeah I, I don't know I'm uh I'm not by, I don't think by nature, I'm a great interviewer, but I'm a very curious person, you know? And I, I mean, you interview people, so you know, like, sometimes curiosity is just, that's it. That goes, that's what, the, that's what turns the key to the door. That's true. It, it, a lot of times a question will spiral into other things just because I want to know more. I like, that sounds really cool. I want to know more about that. Tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah, I always say like curiosity actually is what it, that's what does it for me most of the time because I'm I'm not um I don't know if I'm a great asker of questions, but I'm a great I think that I'm a pretty good seeker of excitement. And yeah, I, I think that's it. You know, and I, I think to go back to Little Devil, I I feel like I can feel that in the in the writing because your poetry collections are are excellent. What I really appreciated about Devil was was that you had all these stories and sometimes you would just tell an anecdote and you could tell it was there just because you found it interesting <laughs> and then you'd yeah. move on. And I thought that was such a neat way to present the material and like how so how much of this book did you have uh, that you didn't that didn't make it into the book like you had talked about the nonfiction piece you'd done all this research yeah I mean I think for me I, research I'm a big researcher right because what I'm actually doing when I'm researching is trying to find these things of excitement where it's like I can't believe this I can't believe I found this thing and I want to tell people about it I want to shout from the mountaintops about this thing that I heard or this thing that I found or you know um it allows me to kind of uh, transfer towards um, somewhat evangelical notions, which I, which is to say, to find the good word of something and then deliver the good word to others. And that's kind of it, you know? Um, for example, Little Devil in America, that opening essay, I watched so much Soul Train. I watched hun literal hundreds of hours of Soul Train. Um, and I, I had a point where I was like, I think the essay has maybe already written itself through these videos. And the best I can do is just tell people what I've experienced, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that, that in part, you know, the research allows me to kind of build a, a baseline or a trampoline towards the evangelical notion. Um, and I think that that is, uh, that's maybe where I'm at my best, I think. Okay. Yeah. Your, your details are really good. Like we had, um, so going back to the dance crazes at the beginning, which I was a super interesting way to start the book you had, but you had this one line about how you're talking about, uh, once the dances became a nationwide craze, you had, you know, white people dancing, they're, they're they they were going for endurance they were trying to see who could dance for two days straight weeks in a row you know that sort of thing and then you had this you talked about how black, black communities that were dancing they were you know african-americans were dancing for style like they didn't have these rhythmic movements just to keep them going past the point of physical physicalness and then you had this line where you said because they had already endured <laughs> and yeah I thought it was such a poignant way to take the elements of the stew and bring out the flavor. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm always kind of interested in the point of um, this, this point of um, expansiveness that pushes an idea to a breaking point and how can I tie up a bunch of ideas at once before that breaking point descends, um, which is hard. And so that's, you know, part of my writing process is just continually seeking, seeking, seeking um, until the balloon is near bursting. And uh, that is, uh, it's a tight, it's a tight rope, you know, it's a tight line to walk. I, I actually credit 
you know, people actually talk about poetry and writing a, across genre and this. I don't actually ever think about it in a practical sense because I'm not really beholden the genre. But if I'm being honest, I do think that there's an element of poetry that taught me about um, walking this tightrope to towards at least what a breaking point could be and knowing how to navigate that that breaking point. Um, you know, saying a lot in a small amount of space, for example. Okay. You know, that's, it's funny you said that because I was just about to ask you, wouldn't that make poetry more limiting to you? Because <laughs> I was thinking, well, it's, if it's hard to do in a big expanse where you have hundreds of pages, do you find a poem constricting for that very reason? No, I feel like it, you know, I feel like the poem kind of trains me to, it trains me along the, the, the delivery of information. You know, like one of my, um, to pivot to music slightly, one of my favorite musicians, you know, I make no secret of this all time, how the musician means maybe the most to me is Bruce Springsteen. And I studied Bruce Springsteen as a writer, you know, and he's mastered this, this gift, this, this form of, um, information delivery wherein he is downloading a lot of information and inputting a lot of information into a small space you look at a song like like atlantic city right you know where the first verse of atlantic city is wild because in that verse alone that verse is like 40 seconds long but but there's a novel within there we get the stakes of the situation we get um characters we get development of characters we get sympathy built around characters we get an understanding of this place that is kind of coming apart at the seams and that rush of information built out in that way in that first verse allows for the rest of the narrative to fall into place because um you know and for those people listening who not have not heard it when they see that say go listen to it immediately but you get a thing where it's like you know you feel for this guy you feel for this guy wandering through this unstable city that is uh, on the verge of exploding. There are people coming. I'm looking for a fight. Gambling commission's falling apart. Uh, this guy's house got blown up. And that's the wild thing, right? The first line is like, you, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. They blew up his house too. And the impulse, I think, as a listener is to say, well, I feel bad for that guy. But <laughs> then we get to the end of the verse and it's like, no, 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 I actually feel bad for this guy. Yeah. Like I feel, I don't feel bad for the guy whose house got blown up anymore. I feel bad for the guy who has to find a way to make a life in the midst of this hell, right? Because yeah. the bomb, the bomb and the blowing up of the house is just a byproduct of the ongoing hell that this living person has to maneuver. And so, you know, I, I take cues from that, from that, like I learned so much from Bruce Springsteen about how to, how to input and how to download a lot of information in a tight space to say, okay, now that you have all this information at your disposal, we can tell a real story. Yeah. That's that's really cool. And and who who are some of your other favorite lyricists? Uh Tracy Chapman means a lot to me. You know, Tracy Chapman for me is one of the great Ohio writers. And I don't mean songwriters, I mean like I think Tracy Chapman is um in some ways a novelist, in some ways a a poet herself, you know. Um I am always i'm so drawn to her work and i'm so drawn to the way that she tells stories um that's a big one i, I love brian ferry from roxy music you know roxy music is a band that means a lot to me and i love brian ferry i love michelle and Diego cello um who i just saw i just saw her you know she's someone who i interviewed for object of sound but i'd never seen her live before in my life and i got to see her um maybe three weeks ago she was in columbus and um <laughs> and that was cool you know there's not many artists i gotta be real like there's not many artists who at this point in my life i'm like i haven't seen because i've seen um like actually so many shows like I, I i was gonna say a million but i'm trying to work on not being hyperbolic um <laughs> but i've seen I, I would say that in my life i have definitely seen have to have by now seen a hundred thousand shows like real talk and so there's like not many artists left on the list of artists I love who I haven't seen. And, um, you know, to get to see Michelle and Diego and Diego cello was a dream for me because she was on that list. And so, uh, that was cool. That's fantastic. Um, and how, how come, so I, how, 
you seem to be really in tune with music. I'm surprised you're not a musician. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not very talented. I mean, that's a, when it comes to that, at least. I, you know, I play piano a little bit, but not very well. I have a piano in my house I mess around on. Um, I was in a couple short-lived bands. I'm just not very good at it. I'm a better, it's, I, I, I'm good at, you know, I'm good at hearing sound and talking about sound and translating what sound means to me and the impact it has on the body and the spirit and all this. But when it comes to making sounds, I, I, you know, I think people would rather hear from a great many other folks than me. I, I think one great strength of mine is that I know um, better than knowing what I'm good at. I, I know what I'm not good at. And uh, that is, uh, that is how I maintain. Okay. Uh Last last question, a little little on the generic side, but what do you want people to know about your writing, or or you as a person? Oh gosh, I think that's such a good question. I think to take it to myself, I think one thing I want people to know about me as a person is just that I am. I I am in in a way I feel so much beyond the work I do. I love the work I do. I love writing and I love, but, you know, and I think that folks who know me a little bit, even folks who see me around the city, you know, I'm I'm out and, and about in Columbus a lot and people stop me and say, Hey, and um, one thing I feel like I'm I'm always more interested in someone else than they could ever be in me. You know, even if we're just having a, even if we're just having like a small interaction, if I'm like, at a coffee shop and someone comes up and is like, yo, what's up? I, I love your book. I'm always like, yo, that's cool, but what's up with you? You know, like what, <laughs> um, because I live here and these, you know, I, I'm a person who lives here and I love one reason I love living in Columbus and why I want to be here for a long time is because, you know, I feel a part of this community, which means that like, if someone comes up to me and says, what's up, we're in the same community. So, you know, we could chop it up for a bit. I sometimes feel bad because I feel like, um, I feel I, I feel bad because I feel like sometimes people legitimately are just coming over to say like, hey, I read your book or whatever. And I end up holding them in a conversation for like 10 minutes more than they probably want, um, <laughs> which I'm, I'm trying to work on that, too. But I, I do have a real exuberance about like, I can't believe that I live here in a place. Um, I'll say this when my first book of nonfiction came out, when um, they can't kill us till they kill us came out, two dollar radio here in Columbus put it out. My whole thing was like, yo, if if like. 50 to 60 people in this city read and love this book. That's all I really want. You know, that, that would mean the world to me because I came up here and I love the people here. And to now be at a point um, where there are people in this city I love who are that appreciative of my work. I, you know, I, I think that um, it's like a dream come true, but it's also a dream come true that, you know, that, that folks that I can like build with folks here and talk to folks here and, you know, I have teachers sometimes come up to me and are like, I read your work and like come by my class. And that's how I, that's how I meet some young writers that I mentor, you know, and this kind of stuff we're building. It's not just like me. It's not just me like moving through this city on high as like the writer, the capital W writer. Like, I feel like we're really building a web of, of community care through these interactions that I get to have with people that sure, maybe um, admittedly, of course, maybe begin with like someone's relationship to my writing, but I'm so quick to steer in a different direction because you know people who know me even a little bit here also know that I'm a million things beyond a writer and I'm a million not a million again working on hyperbole but I'm <laughs> I'm several things before I'm a writer before I'm a writer you know in order to write well I have to be I have to check all these other boxes that make me a person and I'm thankful to live in a place that allows me allows the fullness of me as a person to exist um like I wouldn't be I would not be the writer that I am if, if I didn't live in a, in a place like Columbus where I feel like I am a full and whole person and I'm treated that way um, by the, the, the really great full and whole people who live here yeah. alongside me and with me and all that. Yeah. You, you moved, you moved to Connecticut and then came back homesick. Yeah. For like <laughs> a, uh, two and a half years, I was in Connecticut. My partner at the time I got in a job and so I moved out there and, I did not love it. And I, you know, there was a point where um, when that relationship fell apart, it was kind of like, well, I could live anywhere. I could go anywhere. Um, and I contemplated the many, you know, it was wild to have, to have that level of freedom. I was at the time I was working for a place where I could work remotely wherever I wanted. And I was like, I could live any, in any city I want. And after a while, I was like, what, but why, 
I've, I've, I've spent all this time missing home. And so it made sense for me to just return home. And I'm, I'm uh, every day I'm thankful for that decision. Wonderful. All right. Uh, well, would you like to read a poem before we sign off? Yeah, I'm going to read another short um, ode to an Ohio aviator from the book, um, which like this, these are, it's hard to explain the book uh, in a short way. So I'm not going to do an elevator pitch, but I'll read another ode um, to a legendary Ohio aviator. And uh, this is for Kid Cuddy, Scott Miscuddy, Cleveland, Ohio. Man on the moon, man floating elsewhere, the mixtape cover, a helmet and rainbows. The homie says, yeah, I'm high, while blowing tendrils of smoke into the air. And he means to say, I am beyond here. I see the otherwise inconceivable. And wouldn't you like to know when you might die and how the shit goes down? I believed it when Cuddy said he sees ghosts. Not all haunting is of an evil sort. Sometimes it's love. Sometimes the people who never wanted to leave find a way to stay. The hoodie at the concert reads, Thank God I see ghosts and I know, yes, praise the Lord. We should all be so lucky. Excellent. I'm very excited to read this book. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, This has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Hanif, thank you so very much for joining us. No doubt, Jeremy. Thank you so much. And, and uh, I appreciate your time and, and your generous questions. Thank you.